Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 17 August 2023. This is lecture number 12 in Aging Female Alzheimer's Disease in Association with Postmenopausal Alterations in Lipid Metabolism. And this is going to be, as I uh, counted, lecture 12. And we've been discussing intracellular lipid metabolism. Um, because we spent a lot of time on, on discussing gene expression and signaling that is at the hormonal level. So we're going to be on that track for this lecture. And I'm keeping in mind, this is only um, number one in our portraits in biochemistry, particularly in biomedical conditions. And that's why it's specifically geared towards Aging females, Alzheimer's disease, postmenopausal. So we were talking about these lipases. Lipases can produce free fatty acids. And I was just finishing the lecture um, last time, I guess yesterday. And I was talking about the fact that fatty acids can be taken up by a cell, as well as being synthesized de novo, obviously by the cytosolic FAS. <clears throat> From acetylcholine generated from ATP citrate lyse, from citrate coming from the mitochondrion, because of the buildup of NADH over NAD ratio, because so the TCA cycle sends out citric acid and doesn't complete, because ATP synthesis is not the important component of the cell, but rather a new membrane lipid synthesis, both cholesterologenesis and fatty acid synthesis. But now we're talking about lipases. And I finished last time by talking about the fact that fatty acids can be taken up by a cell, a sterified coenzyme A, and then go into central metabolism. So the endothelial lipase we've been discussing, they could be related to these transport proteins. Remember, we were talking about transport proteins for lipids. This is really a significant thing because, as it turns out, transport proteins, such as these oxysterol binding proteins, are just as important as the oxysterol itself relative to normal physiology and pathophysiology, right? So oxysterol binding proteins. Remember, we were talking about this paper, very well done paper about inhibition of those proteins and what can occur to metabolism and to what's going on subcellularly that ultimately generates a physiological response. This condition we're talking about is are some of these putative toxic oxysterols, specifically 27-hydroxycholesterol. Remember, coming from that 27-hydroxylase pathway. Okay, so I think I've given you enough background. So endothelial lipase, called the LIPG, that's the gene. Remember, it is a triacylglycerol lipase. And in actually where you find this particular enzyme is in association with adipose. You find it in adipose, you find it in skeletal muscle, you find it in cardiac muscle. And also, you know, you have a hormone lipase, a hormone-sensitive lipase that comes up in the liver and also in the adipose. Now, this LIPG enzyme, specific esterase, is primarily synthesized, that is transcribed, translated, by vascular endothelial cells. 
So that's the reason we're on to this now, because those are, of course, are going to be cells that you find in the CNS. Now, it's abundantly expressed in a lot of other tissues where there's a great deal of vascularization. Where do you see that? Let's see. How about the lung? How about, yes, reproductive organs like the testes and the placenta and the ovary? But also you find LIPG in the kidney and the thyroid and the liver. So LIPG, the way that that protein is uh, synthesized at the level of translation, comes out as a 55-codalton polypeptide. It gets post-translational glycosylation, so that means it could be secreted, yes, from a cell. So that means it's an ER localized glycosylation going from the ER to the cysts and the trans-Golgi network, making it through the plasma membrane and then secreted. And when it's secreted, it comes out as a 68KD protein, right? Because of this all this sodomitation of glycosylation. After secretion, LIPG will bind to proteoglycans on the cell surface, and that's how it exerts its main function. Outside the cell, that polypeptide can be further converted via proprotein convertases. And that can result in an inactive amino terminal 40 kilodalton and a carboxy terminal 28 kilodalton polypeptide. So that means this protein, this lipase, can actually be taken out of commission by that, that convertase activity. It has a shared identity of only about 44% with lipoprotein lipase, and about a 40% also with hormone-sensitive lipase, and even lower homology in terms of its, its uh, amino acid sequence with pancreatic lipase, so about 27%. But all those enzymes have that catalytic domain for lipases, well, for esterases in general, but for this particular lipase, you find particularly in the mammalian uh, genome. And so it has the conservation of what we call the catalytic triad. And the catalytic triad I've talked about in general biochemistry. I love talking about it, but I'm not going to do it now because we're focused. But the triad is serine 169, aspartate 193, histidine 274. And without that triad, you get no lipid hydrolysis. Okay. There are also a couple of hydrophobic stretches. <clears throat> on either side of that catalytic triad. And that's probably necessary for substrate binding because remember the substrate is a lipid. Now, like other triacylglycerol lipases, the LIPG protein begins with a secretory signal peptide and that's an 18 residue hydrophobic region. <laughs> There's a conserved, positively charged heparin binding site and that, of course, is going to govern its binding to heparin sulfate proteoglycans on the cell surface. And that's aided by five glycosylation sites. And so, and, and that particular acceptor sequence for the amino acid level is also very canonical. It's asparagine X and then serine or threonine. Okay. These are amino acid motifs you've heard of many times. So one of the things that LIPG hydrolysis does, it can take an HDL, a high-density lipoprotein. The LIPG is on the surface of the cell. The LIPG will hydrolyze off 
from the HDL. It will make lysophosphatidylcholine and lysophosphatidylethanolamine. Those two, those lysophospholipids can enter the cell, as can the free fatty acid through receptors on the surface. That's the enzymatic activity of the LIPG. But the LIPG also does this bridging phenomenon we talked about in the past of these. Now, remember, we were talking about then what? Oxysterol binding proteins, right? Well, LIPG, that enzyme, can also bridge lipoproteins to the surface, okay? And again, that's this whole discussion with heparin sulfate proteoglycans. So lipoproteins, HDL is a common one, but also LDL and VLDL, will bind directly to the LIPG on the surface. The LIPG binding now to the cell. And it will internalize completely the lipoprotein. And that's, of course, the process of endocytosis. And then those lipoproteins will be broken down, catabolized, and they can supply the cell with the unique cluster of lipids necessary for cellular modification and utilization in the endomembranous system. Okay. So again, lipoproteins are often classically considered to be just mobile carriers of lipids with a, with a non-covalently associated lipoprotein complex that allows able lipoprotein to bind to other proteins and surfaces of cells as recognition sequen- sequences. And then the lipid itself is the, what's being transferred, such as cholesterol being delivered to cells, right? Like via the chylomicrons or via the LDL or, or even in some instances the HDL back to the liver. That's all happening for sure. But now I want you to realize the entire lipoprotein can be taken up via these proteins that bind on the surface, these LIPG proteins and others. And that makes the contact point for these to be taken up. So now you're getting the apolipoprotein fraction and you're also getting all the lipids that are there. But the lipids are already preformed in some other cell or by lipoprotein, lipoprotein interaction while they're in circulation. You know that the docking happens between LDL and HDL, for example. Transfer, for example, cholesterol esters, right? Yes, yes, yes. So you get the idea, and that, that's the reverse transport of cholesterol back to the liver. You get the idea now that when you have this prepackage of lipoprotein coming into a cell, you're going to completely modify that cell, not by altering gene expression, but by altering lipid metabolism directly. In situ into that cell, because you're going to be delivering all these lipids that are preformed with specific membrane lipid molecular species. And with that, any associated cargo that can be rearranged with lipid membrane rafts. Understand the dynamics of this system. It's absolutely brilliant. And it adds to the overall flavor and character of living systems. Event ontologies, right? I love it. Now, LIPG overexpression, what happens? Because, you know, people like to do this. They get a protein, they're studying it, right? I've done this when I was a kid as a postdoc. So you underexpress it, you overexpress it. You want to know what's going on. You want, this is a way for you to understand the function of the protein, right? You're altering its quantity, right? And by altering its quantity, you can also alter its quality, right? And you remember we went through this discussion a while back. We were discussing categories, right? Yes. All right. Categories of what? Phenomena. All right. 
LIPG overexpression results in increased level of extracellular, this is no surprise, lysophosphatylcholine, and also lysophosphatylethanolamine. Why? Because the lipase is removing fatty acids, right? And you find those in the culture medium. And you also see increased levels of intracellular PC, lysopc, and then, as we talked about before, Via, via the utilization of components of the Kennedy pathway and lipase activity and phospholipid metabolism in general, you make triacylglycerol. You make the perilipin-associated unit membrane around that oil body, and you have now lipid as triacylglycerol available for what? Lipase-mediated breakdown. And then utilization of the fatty acids, for example, for beta oxidation. Think about a muscle cell, right? A good, healthy muscle cell has lots of lipid bodies. All right. So LIPG supplies the cells. But remember, it's a unique lipase, right? It's a unique one because it doesn't spend so much time hydrolyzing triacylglycerol, so it does phospholipids, right? So it means it has a much more powerful signaling, vectorial signaling um, purpose, okay? So LIPG supplies cells with HDL-derived lysophosphatylcholine, lysophosphatylethylamine, which result directly in higher levels of triacylglycerol and PC. Okay, but you get a decrease in endogenous phosphatylcholine biosynthesis. Now, that's at the level of turning down the expression of the genes. Remember that feedback mechanism those authors were talking about in that steroids paper, right? So, besides just supporting metabolism, LIPG can actually promote an anti-inflammatory function. And this is what HDL sometimes is given credit for. But it's not the HDL, it's the alteration of lipid metabolism because of that asterase called LIPG, right? Yes, that phospholipase. Uh-huh, either on the surface of the cell, moving the entire lipoprotein in, or hydrolyzing off the lipids from the lipoprotein, like HDL doctor, you see? That's what's going on. Now, why would that be anti-inflammatory? Well, inflammation can be induced many ways intracellularly. But one of the initial points is the production of reactive oxygen. And reactive oxygen can induce the production of eicosanoids. These are pro-inflammatory oxylipids, right? Such as the prostanoids, the prostaglandins, the leukotrienes, depending on if you're talking about the cyclooxygenase pathway or the lipoxygenase pathway. There's also a P450 pathway. These are initiators of inflammatory response because these oxygenated lipids will then induce downstream the signaling necessary to make transcription factors move to the nucleus and cause fresh transcription of, in these endothelial cells, for example, pro-inflammatory cytokines. Okay? So bringing in lipids from outside can maintain enough ratio of lipid metabolism that seems to be able to um, control the level of phospholipase activity like PLA2 that would generate, say, free arachidonic acid running it through the Cox-Lox pathway. You see? Now, again, this isn't so much um, just hand-waving. 
It's what you could call heteronormative speculation, right? It's heteronormative because you know that this is not a homotypic response. Nothing in the cell is homotypic for more than, you know, a few seconds. The alteration of activity in cells, because they're constantly communicating with the external milieu, particularly in the animal system, but in the plant system even more so, because then it's the abiotic environment too, right? Um, but again, I digress there. The point I'm trying to make is that these are very dynamic systems throughout the body. But when you start getting down to the biochemical level, like we biochemists do, like you are becoming, if you're listening to authentic biochemistry, you understand that at the earthy level, this is happening all the time. There are, again, I say millions of activities occurring because this is exactly what is going on. Even though you only have tens of thousands or maybe a few thousand at a given time enzymes in a cell that you can measure, each of those enzymes and each of those interacting um, networks with all the different metabolites as the events, not as substances, are carrying out multiple functions with dual or even triple or quad level of regulation, controlling things from bioenergetics to gene expression. Right. And it's not like this is all like confusing and we don't understand. And it's just this, you know, like I heard a long time ago, I think when I was in graduate school, that some geneticists called a cell a bag of enzymes. I mean, how horrible that person should have been defrocked. They should, if they had a PhD, the PhD should have been removed from them. The cell is not a bag of enzymes, right? It's a terrible thing. But I heard that more than once, probably from a professor. And the professor was definitely not a biochemist. Let's just put it that way. Probably a geneticist because, well, there are deficiencies throughout life, you know? Anyways, hydrolysis of HDL, which can occur in multiple ways, the docking mechanism, pulling in the HDL entirely or just on the surface, by the cell IPG enzyme, activates the transcription factor. Remember, I was warning you of this five minutes ago. One of the transcription factors, PPAR-alpha, proxyproliferate-activating um, receptor alpha, okay? Now, when you activate that transcription factor, what happens is you inhibit vascular cell adhesion molecule 1 expression. That's VCAM1. So when this occurs in endothelial cells, that will knock down directly the pro-inflammatory response because it also leads to, because that's a VCAM protein, right? That's a vascular cell adhesion molecule one. So VCAM is your lowering expression by inducing PPAR alpha from the LIPG activity on the HDL. Leads to the suppression of leukocyte adhesion to the endothelia. Okay. And if you don't have the leukocyte attaching to the endothelia, you can inhibit before it occurs, right? A possibility for an inflammatory response. All right, our paper published 2019 uh, tells me the following, but we're going to go back now and talk about 25-hydroxy cholesterol. I've been talking about throughout these la these last four or five lectures. It's just that I'm giving you all the detail, so bear with me. 27-hydroxy cholesterol also downregulates that particular lipid seems to downregulate the PSD95 and the synaptosomal nerve-associated protein 25. The PSD is, of course, the postsynaptic density 
95. See synapses here. And the synaptosomal nerve associated protein 25, of course, is another protein linked to central nervous system synapses. Now, a major mechanism that contributes to cognitive impairment that's observed in the murine model, remember, is elevated levels of 27-hydroxy, which is associated with the loss of synaptic function. I just told you two ways that occurs. 27-hydroxy cholesterol down-regulates the transcription and therefore translation and, act and activity of PSD95 and SNAP25. Those are synaptosomal proteins required for functional synaptic neural uh, migration, neural transmission. Okay. All right. Now, a mechanism by which that 27-hydroxy cholesterol down-regulates PSD95 directly links 27-hydroxy cholesterol levels. And those levels have also been associated, increased levels in the CNS, again, murine model, with a decrease in dendritic tree complexity, spine density. And that, of course, is also linked to this decrease in PSD95. So not only synapto, synaptosomal degradation, but also a decrease in dendritic tree complexity, spine density. Okay, so this is really starting to look at 27-hydroxycholesterol as causing real, authentic, in-situ damage to the CNS. But now, keep in mind, right, that data I just told you there was all about the murine CNS. Now, paper published in Trends in Neuroscience in 2015 told me this. The negative effects of 25-hydroxycholesterol in synapses is affected by working on neurons and astroglial cells. Now, remember, I already told you about 27-hydroxy affecting PSD95 and SNAP25. High 27-hydroxy cholesterol levels also affect the renin-angiotensin system in the CNS. And that works through a protein called IRAP, which is linked to glucose uptake. So 25-hydroxycholesterol can also inhibit glucose uptake in the central nervous system. And remember, glucose is the primary carbon source for bioenergetics in mammalian CNS. So glucose transporters probably also play some kind of role here because they're associated now with this decreased synaptic function. And where do you see this? in human studies as well as in the murine models. This, this glucose transporter uh, issue with a decrease in synaptic function is associated with Alzheimer's disease. And this is linked to the GLUT transporters. It's also, 25-hydroxycholesterol is also associated, as we've mentioned before, on apolipoprotein E4 release into the cell. And that can influence those proteinopathies. Because remember, apolipoprotein E4 is in protein. So protein-protein association can sometimes cause, especially if that protein acts catalytically, um, at, at a biophysical level, by the way, 
uh, altering the fluid dynamics of the protein in either the membrane associated with the membrane or even the cytosol, generating sometimes oligomerization of other proteins that are otherwise functioning normally. But ApoE4 does influence protein aggregation. And it can occur in the extracellular environment. And also, it's been shown in the CNS to influence insulin, which of course is a protein. Insulin aggregation extracellularly in the CNS, that's going to be a bona fide proteinopathy. Okay. All right. So give the proteins due when it's necessary. <laughs> so again, I think I've explained pretty much the negative effects of 27-hydroxyl cholesterol and synapses are legion. They act on neurons and astroglial cells. I told you that these 27-hydroxyl cholesterol levels increase the effect on diminishing PSD95 of SNAP25. I told you about the Rengen angiotensin system working through IRAP and glucose transporters, right? The mechanisms on the astrocytes are less understood than on the neurons, but the idea is the same. Remember how the astrocytes were involved in that breakdown of the sphingomyelin, the production of the ketone bodies in the aging female brain? utilizing now ketone bodies, hydroxybutyrate rather than glucose because glucose transporters weren't functioning any longer in the senescing postmenopausal female brain, more than the male brain, right? We, we mentioned that probably seven, eight, nine lectures ago. Go back and listen. This is one of the key ways that it can occur. Now with this potent interlocutor, this biochemical interlocutor, 27-hydroxycholesterol, okay? So you get this decreased glucose uptake because of 27-hydroxycholesterol. And then that does this whole ApoE release, and that causes this protein aggregation. And insulin-like growth factor and insulin itself, those proteins can become polymerized or aggregated, causing proteinopathies, which may link up with the um, amyloid precursor protein converted to the A-beta oligomer forms not so much a level of plaque formation, but those uh, octamers and those lower aggregate uh, quantity substances, which are associated more with the disease Alzheimer than with the plaque, which is a heavy loaded, higher molecular mass. Now, solid structure, plaque. Same thing with the hyperphosphorylation of the tau protein. Okay. So, now, where cholesterol itself is fitted here is still needs to be understood. We're talking about 25-hydroxycholesterol. Okay, and we told you that can be synthesized. It can be in circulation. Right? We told you about the enzymes. We told you about what cells can produce it. But the endothelia cells in the CNS can produce it too. So what's going on there? Well, that could be a component of, because it's linked to obesity and also to type 2 diabetes, which is linked to insulin insensitivity in the aging, postmenopausal, obese female population, then rendering an increase in the morbidity and mortality linked to Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so I finally put that aspect together. I want you to get this whole concept of insulin aggregation as a proteinopathy that happens in the CNS that can be linked to 
a beta protein oligomerization and hyperphosphorylated tau uh, neurofibrillary tangles, which of course are the canonical proteinopathies linked to AD. Right? And these are linked now to 27-hydroxy cholesterol that could be synthesized in situ, remember, in the neuron or in the astrocyte, because we've already covered that off. All right. So let me see where we're at here. I don't want to go over. Oh, okay. We, well, we're just about the end, so I'll stop here. We're almost at 29 minutes. Okay, so I think we've gotten pretty far along here on the pathobiochemistry of Alzheimer's disease now. It could be linked to the loss in estrogen in circulation and the decrease in estrogen receptors and the modification of non-estrogen receptor or sometimes yes estrogen receptor agonized agonized alteration of activation because of oxysterols which increase upon senescence obesity aging menopause and the drop in estrogen biosynthesis because this is all a huge component of lipid metabolism dealing with cholesterologenesis and steroidogenesis in situ and in circulation, right, in the periphery, but making it back into the blood, past the blood-brain barrier as the brain ages, okay? So I think we're almost done with this whole arc of lectures. Uh, I'll probably do a number 13 because I like the number. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. This is a Friday, almost noon now. Um, yeah. On 17th of August, 2023. Bye for now.